everybody. Welcome to the first No Film School podcast of 2022, deliberately phrased to not sound like 2022. <laughs> and I'm Charles Hain. I'm a filmmaker. I'm here with George Edelman, editor-in-chief of No Film School. Hello and Happy New Year. And Kath Tolentino, a filmmaker and writer and podcaster and all sorts of things. Yes. Hello. Happy New Year. And this week we are going to be talking about the two big holiday-related movies, obviously the Elf on the Shelf movie, but bigger than that, An Alien Christmas. No, actually, bigger than that, if you don't have kids, Don't Look Up and Spider-Man No Way Home. We're going to be talking about Sundance, and it's, is it really going to happen this year? And in tech news, we've got a cool drone, and we're going to wrap all that up with some strategies for what you should do when you are attending festivals with a project this week on the No Film School podcast. So our first subject this week is a huge theatrical win for the holiday season. Like despite Omicron taking off in the last couple of weeks, Spider-Man No Way Home has already become the highest grossing film of the year, the 12th highest grossing film of all time, and right in the middle of like sort of peak pandemic. And that's sort of interesting. And then George, you were saying as we warmed up that there's, there's, you think that there's going to be a big push for best picture. Oh yeah, no. I mean, I I think I know. I even saw a tweet with some of their already like for your consideration banners, and the tweet was titled, or the quote in the tweet was was Marvel is really going for it. <laughs> like, and I think it's like the Oscars last year. Granted, it was a very strange year, stranger than any year probably. Were like so low rated that they barely, they didn't even crack like the top hundred things for the year. Like nobody watched it. Nobody was watching a lot of the movies. But look, the Oscars are also just in general decline. People aren't super interested in them. I think everybody listening probably knows what the three of us think of them. But <laughs> so we don't need to recap. But it makes sense to me that the movie that blew away numbers is a movie that people are like, hey, how do we, we got to get people interested in the Oscars and we got to get people interested in the the Oscars. What are they going to do? They're going to market, you know, the Batman and whatever. Like, so it's a marketing thing. So it makes sense to take the movie people know about that they, that people at large saw and try to get it front and center. And it's mind boggling to me on some level that the movie that stars all the Spider-Men is (laughs) <laughs> it's called no way like everything about it is silly to me like parody level but here we are it's a strange time and i would also throw out that you know of all the, the, the you know ever since the martin scorsese thing we've talked about this all ad nauseum like the kind of like these aren't films this isn't cinema whatever and that's not what martin scorsese said by the way but regardless paul thomas anderson who had licorice pizza open in wider release over this break this period of time He was very positive about the impact of Spider-Man No Way Home. And he was sort of like, hey, let's hope it gets people in the theater. This is great. Like, I want, this is what's going to, stuff like this is what's going to keep us afloat. And it's great. And I love it. And blah, blah, blah. Which I thought was kind of an interesting counterpoint to what a lot of people in his position and in his sort of sector say about that level of release and it being, you know, his movie will certainly be up against it, but I think he's also secure enough that he's not thinking like, oh, I'm going to be pissed if I don't get another award because Spider-Man No Way Home did. 
he wants people going to theaters, I think. So yeah, it's a lot. It, it was, I mean, it's a big, it, it's the, it was the big movie of the year uh, by a long shot. And like I said, I think it's just, we're also at a point with coronavirus, COVID-19, where people are, despite this surge, they were like, they're going to go to the movies. They want to see the Spider-Man movie. What are the other movies that would be in the running for best, you know, best picture 2021? I mean, I guess we talked about this on the last podcast, but I just feel like. I mean, I don't know that we even really have talked about it that much. I mean, first off, we should talk about like the Golden Globes basically disappearing. Like they're not going to be on TV this year because of all the drama last year. And like they made their announcements today and nobody I know is talking like, like basically award shows can just disappear. It turns out like the Golden Globes, which like was always considered the run up to the Oscars and like, you know, like 80% as serious as the Oscars or like 40%, but still like a serious thing. It's just like, I think they're having it this year, but I don't think they are. Yes. But, but I don't think anyone, I don't think it is no. on any radar. They're on life um, support. They got canceled effectively. And, uh, <laughs> and so it's really interesting to be like, oh, if you're the Oscars, like you're the Oscars, you're probably not getting canceled, but you're probably thinking a lot about relevance yes. and like being part of the culture and engaging with what culture does so i think that's really interesting in terms of contenders i I, god i have no idea well Um, west side story wants to win everything right mm. yeah but i don't think it's gonna i think that well they've expanded the categories ever since the dark knight right that was the last time there was this kind of awareness that the oscars were fading in relevance but the movies that because the movies most americans and most people in the in the world were seeing were not being recognized so they were like, but hey, The Dark Knight, everybody loves it and it's pretty damn good. And why doesn't that like, so anyway, that's when they expanded again to 10. I think that the movies that are winning like awards right now in these like critics award circles and stuff that people talk about a lot, Power of the Dog is a big one and Licorice Pizza is a big one. And, you know, outside of that, I, th- I think that the Macbeth, the, the Coen's Macbeth is probably going to get some attention. I could probably think of some others that I think are really good, but those are the ones that I'm sort of seeing pop on, up on these lists. And and those are three movies that I don't think most Americans are going to see. I haven't even heard of The Power of the Dog. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> That's I, I don't funny. know, you guys. This is like... That's great, though, because I think you're reflective in that of the... Gen- like, you are a filmmaker. And, and I love Jane Campion. How, yeah. like, I don't know. Yeah. Because I think because the only way, I mean, I my work with no film school means I hear about everything, and I think that the that awareness would drift way way down. I also think living in Los Angeles, you are just truly inundated with advertisements for movies. Right, but and and I do think this is a point I try to make to my fellow Angelinos all the time, especially the other born and raised people, which is that they think that the whole they really think that the rest of the country and the world is as inundated. Like they think people are aware and know. And it's like, I always try to remind them, like if you go to other major cities, there are not billboards everywhere mm-hmm. for movies. Do you realize that? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, realize- I remember moving to LA <laughs> and saying to a friend of mine who lived there, I was like, there's so many movie billboards here <laughs> and it feels so self-indulgent. Is everybody just like wanting to drive around looking at their own projects on billboards? Yes. And she was like, yes. 
Yes, that's what it is. Well, it's that's funny because it I live in the Bay Area and all we have are tech billboards. So exactly. Yeah, you know, you know, we were over the break. We visited my in-laws up there and we visited other family in Arizona. I didn't see a single advertisement for a movie anywhere, <laughs> anywhere. Like here, I literally drive to Target and I will see every major release, like at least once, maybe twice if it's on a bus. All of, And I do think part of it is that, so I think part of it is that the PR, it, it seems silly, but I think that they push the ads here because everybody around here will see it and be like, okay, cool. We're really pushing it hard. Like, we're, we're like oh, every, yeah. and it's like this, the, but the foolishness of that is just like, yeah, to like one city. But, it's also <laughs> but not, if but you inverted the, if you inverted the budget, if you were like, okay, we're going to spend $0 in LA and take all the money we were going to spend on those super expensive LA billboard and spend more in the rest of the country, it would probably be more effective. But then the people who approve those budgets would not see any billboards and would feel like it wasn't happening. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's like a very strange situation. It's really, I took my wife on a job with me to Arkansas once and she was like, all the billboards here are about how you're going to burn in hell. And I was like, oh, you've never lived in the South. Like, it's, you know. They are, or they're about some local congressman screwing you over, like, water rights. Like, <laughs> I mean, stay out of your National Park Service is such a theme. Like, yeah, there's always very angry billboards. Just, very even in California, specific. when you drive yeah. out of the cities, you'll see yeah. these really Nor specific Cal. targeted, like, somebody, he's, steal yeah, he's stealing your water. Some guy you've yeah. never heard of. I, it's, it's a strange phenomenon. And I try to, I, I, it really seeps into the consciousness because people here really do think that everybody cares about every movie and TV show. When in reality, most people do not give a shit, like at, <laughs> at, like at all. And I think that's incredible, that, dis, that dissonance. But again, like, so you're a filmmaker, you're a female filmmaker, you know movies, you work in, in content creation and stuff. You and consider you're like, yourself oh. a Jane Campion fan. <laughs> and you're like, she made a movie yeah. this year? Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm <And> that, embarrassed. <laughs> no, but... it's, you shouldn't be. It speaks to how hard it is to cut through the noise yeah. and even get this stuff. This is exactly what we ended last year talking about. So it's a great place to pick up because it is the question of our time. It's, it's a great, like, how do you cut through the noise? Even when you have Benedict Cumberbatch starring in a role where he's considered phenomenal in a film, like all these things about this movie, you know, and you're not, they're not effectively cutting through the noise, mm. but Spider-Man is so. Well, and what's interesting for me. So, you know, obviously all of our primary social media platforms are really self-reinforcing, right? Like two separate friends of mine on Facebook have been like, here are my thoughts on the power of the dog, because you know, like one of them is a director and the other is I think a writer. Like, you know, it's like movie people. And obviously, you know, my Twitter is just bike nerds. So I actually, like, I don't do this on purpose. I engage in Imgur because it's just my favorite social net network. Imgur is the best. But I also find Imgur really great because it, it reminds me of, like, every once in a while there'll be a post, like there was a post about Power of the Dog. And, like, the post was, this is a movie that's out right now I'm sure none of you have heard of. And all of the comments were, oh, yeah, haven't heard of it. Didn't know this was coming out. I like Benedict bumble batch i'll go you know and it's like it's just this good reminder that like outside of your bubbles like there are things that like literally there was a post on imgur the other day that was all about don't look up and like half of the commenters were like i hadn't heard about this i will go check it out and it's like <laughs> don't look up is like so heavily promoted it's like a, a a fire cannon of money promoting it right now yeah and it's still not 
going to reach everybody, and that's like the digital era. Circling back to Oscars, I think Don't Don't Look Up and, and West Side Story are what we would traditionally consider the contenders. If we're looking at like what would have been competing in the 90s, like the, the star-studded political movie and the big A-list director movie, I don't know that either of those are really in the running. I mean, we'll have to see. But I think that it's interesting to hear you say Licorice Pizza. I'm a huge B.T. Anderson fan. I really like Licorice Pizza. I'll totally watch it again. It doesn't seem like an Oscar movie. I really loved it. Right. It made me really happy. I, I, I like If it got nominated for Best Picture, I'd be, I'd be like, really? I mean, Alana Haim deserves to be nominated for Best Actress. She was amazing. And Cooper Hoffman, deserved, like they were great. I think, and so maybe that should be Best Picture. Maybe Spider-Man should be Best Picture. I haven't seen it yet. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I'm not, you know, if it was up to me, you know, there wouldn't be a best picture, there all kinds of things. But I, th- I'm just thinking because of the way the year is, because of the, the, I'm going by the PR hype and just what's in the conversation. And I think that Licorice Pizza has struck something in this year. And that's my. It is nominated for best musical or comedy for the Golden Globes. So it's on people's oh, wow. lists. Yeah, I, I so think it, I think it's. I mean, Belfast. Like, look, I thought Belfast was amazing. And oh, deserved, Belfast should win Best Picture, and, absolutely. And I, and I thought I will keep banging this drum. I think Nightmare Alley is a masterpiece, and I think it should be recognized. But there's a lot of movies that were like I, that I really liked this year, but I just don't like the game of the awards. Is there's so much going on there, and I'm just thinking about what have I seen that's really getting that PR attention. Your career in virtual production starts here and now. Earn your spot on tomorrow's set with Synapse Virtual Production in LA by enrolling in RIT's immersive 10-day course this June. An exclusive experience in LA, you'll get the foundation you need to grow your career in a virtual production studio, the kind behind the groundbreaking effects seen in Disney's The Mandalorian and Marvel's Avenger films. Limited seats are available. Learn more and enroll today at vpritcertified.education. That's vp.ritcertified.education. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. But I'm going to do a callback to an early pandemic podcast. Jason Hellerman was our guest in like April 2020, right after we shut down. And we had a long conversation of like, we're creatives. We're all going to use the time to write a script. Like, what are you going to write about? And I was like, so Jason, like, in your opinion, should people try and deal with current events? And Jason's like, no, no, ignore this <laughs> nostalgia. Give us something enjoyable and distracting and not in the present. And please don't. And it's really interesting that like of. You know, we're we're at the point where these are all pandemic shot movies. Don't look up shot in the pandemic, Belfast shot in the pandemic, Liquor's Pizza shot in the pandemic. And the one that you just said struck a chord, and I do think has struck a chord, is this like very nostalgic ode to in a time and you don't see a single mask in Liquor's Pizza. And like it's like this beautiful thing about like young love in the seventies that like you know, there's like a thing to that that I think is maybe, I think Jason was probably right in his like, maybe the move now is a nostalgic thing. Cause like, I mean, I just to pivot to don't look up, which is our, the second of our early topics. It's, I wanted to talk about it because, you know, it's a $75 million movie that spent $55 million on their stars. So really it's a $20 million movie with a $55 million cast. And I think there's a lot of interesting stuff for filmmakers to think about with it. 
But one of the things is that it's incredibly polarizing, right? Like it's 55% on Rotten Tomatoes. Like it's all like there are all these takes about whether or not it's good or bad, but it got a ton, ton of engagement, even though it's about stuff people don't want to engage with. So many people have seen it. So many people are talking about it. And it's stuff that it's tough. It's like trying to deal with naughty subjects. So I think that's sort of an interesting thing to think about. Like those are the two arguments I of mean, the Jason versus Charles in the in the podcast April 2020. Don't look up my family that are not into movies, like multiple people in my family, and it's not a movie family, just discovered this movie on Netflix and were like, oh, what's this movie with these stars in it? I'll watch it. Watched it. And then we're like, this movie is weird. I don't like it. And then turn it off. Like, I think people aren't necessarily watching it because it's about climate change, right? I mean, they're watching it because Jennifer Lawrence is in it and Leo is in it and Meryl Streep is in it. And, and Well, I mean, that's, that, that's what I'm saying is that like, strategically, I think whatever your problems might be with Don't Look Up, and I have a few, Adam McKay clearly made the decision of, I want the most possible people to watch this movie. Mm-hmm. And I want to get to people who aren't just climate change nerds. I want to get to everybody. And how do you do that? You get Meryl Streep, Jennifer Lawrence, and Leo. And that's how you get a whole bunch of non-movie people to watch it. And like, that's, I think, a really smart move to try and get people to further engage with bigger issues. Mm. So I, like, that's what's interesting to me is like, you know, you hear crazy stuff about star salary all the time, but like, he really did find three stars that are legitimately big enough. You get a lot of people who would normally not watch this movie to watch the movie. And I think strategically, that's really smart. Uh, I don't think the cross-cutting works. Like almost every scene is cross-cut with another scene in a way that I think people who are really used to watching like indie films of the 90s are very used to, but I don't necessarily think served the story as well as it could have personally. And honestly, I think just that is something that people are responding too. Like so many of the people I know who don't like it, I think that's part of the problem because literally the whole thing is crosscut. Like I think 80% of scenes, it's two scenes crosscut in a way that never lets you settle in and feel engaged with the characters. That was my take. That seems very annoying. This is, this is interesting. I haven't watched it. It does not interest me personally. I think part of it is because I mean, maybe nobody really cares why, <laughs> but I haven't watched it. Um, but the point that the interesting thing to me about it is from a filmmaking standpoint, that it is this like, it's another example with the streamer of just like a whole lot of cash. It just looks like a whole lot of cash got thrown at like, there was a part of me when I first saw the ads and I saw Leonardo DiCaprio in it. I was like, why is like, I know Leo for Leonardo DiCaprio. Climate crisis is a is a really important issue, and that's why he but he he got I'm, full rate. No, he didn't take a discount. He took a discount for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Right, he went from twenty to ten on Once Upon. He no, but full freight, full rate, full rate. Yes, so he's still in a position where full rate offers. He's making decisions, but this wasn't a like I care so passionately enough. I'm taking a cut. No, this I, was full rate. I I have not the idea of Leonardo DiCaprio starring in a Netflix release feels like it's a signal of a change in the time to some extent, but it doesn't surprise me that for a guy who's so precious about the directors he works with, no slight to Adam McKay, but he's not Martin Scorsese, you know, and I think that Leo or Quentin Tarantino, he doesn't occupy that artiste, you know, specialized, like Leo is just so, he's in this really unique, unique spot where he's like only picking these 
Like I'm going to do a movie that is the crown jewel of the year where I am the star and it's in theaters only and blah, 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 blah. And it's with some very celebrated filmmaker. So to see him be with Adam McKay and Netflix, I think two things had to happen. He had to get a lot of money and it had to be about something that he is really passionate about because it still surprises me to, that, to see him. It also modern day, like when does he ever do anything that's not period anymore too? Like it just feels yeah. like he's so surgical about what he chooses. And that also kind of jumped out at me. Not to mention that like Jennifer, like this is so far from anything our our audience, like this is such a unique <laughs> like situation. Like our audience is not ever going to be I, I don't know. There's you don't I, know that we could all be in this situation in five years' time. Like let's let's go, let's walk into 2020 with a little bit of optimism. <laughs> Ten just, of our listeners in the next decade will have a decision where they have 55 million dollars to spend in casting, and they get to choose how to do it. Like let's let's believe it's pot. You know what? It's a good point. Things are changing so quickly that I could easily see the people who make only the traditional avenues be having more trouble. You know, when I talked to a couple of the people who worked on Licorice Pizza, the DP and the editor, there's what you don't realize is that they have a great time working with PTA, obviously, and it's a lot of fun and it's amazing. But there is a lot of constraints and it's a challenge. And the same when I spoke to Wes Anderson's DP earlier this year, these guys actually have to, they're kind of like, they're, they're on the margins. And it's possible that if you, relationships with streaming giants with these projects that become a passion project for a major star that a newer filmmaker, we just dropped an interview with a German indie filmmaker named Nora Fingscheidt, who directed a Netflix film, Unforgivable, starring Sandra Bullock. And she really just went from, I'm making my indie movie in Germany. It's getting festival attention to, hey, you want to direct this massive Netflix release with this massive star? And she was suddenly there. So you're Charles, you're 100% right. And I'm wrong. It could be any of you dealing with these things and all that comes with it. Well, and also these are not that different from the decisions you make. I mean, when I did my little like multi hundred thousand dollar movie, like one of our conversations was what percentage can we put to cast? Right? Like that's not a, you know, we're, I've worked on a ton of projects in the like million to $5 million range where you're like, all right, how much of this is going to cast? And like, you know, this is a movie where 80% of the budget went to cast. And like, that was a strategic decision that like you might also someday want to make for a project to get it to where like that might be the right fit and it's okay. What's really interesting is that you say you saw the trailer and you thought it looked expensive because the only thing about it that's expensive is the cast. Yes. It actually, when you watch it, the VFX are like, I, 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 I guarantee you that some VFX artist who worked on it is going to hate to hear this. The VFX are not great. Obviously, they were rushed and low budget. I, I know VFX artists who worked on this that you can do better work. I believe in you. This isn't an insult to your work. It's an insult to like the budget you were given and the time you were given. But like some of the VFX are not great. And like some of the crowd scenes feel like it's the most COVID looking movie I've seen. Belfast and Licorice Pizza, you can completely forget they shot during COVID. It never crosses your mind. You are aware when you are watching this movie that you're like, you don't have enough extras. That's a Manhattan street scene. And there's like one dude in the background in a dinosaur outfit. And like, you don't even have the money to digitally put more people in. Like, it's a $20 million movie, not an $80 million movie, but it's an $80 million movie that spent $50 million on cast. But it got so many people to watch it because of that. And if you really do believe this issue is important, then that's a win, even if the filmmaking might not be always to your taste. I have a buddy who's a filmmaker who said, this is the first movie I haven't liked that I thought I might have liked as a series. 
And he's right. Like the biggest issue is the characterizations are so rushed that you never really get a chance to engage with any of the characters. And it's like, oh, actually, yeah. as a longer series, I could maybe actually have seen this working. But it goes back to the point of like Adam and Kay wants to get climate change in the conversation and make people realize how imminent the problem is. And I think that maybe it's better to do that like with a film than a series. Yeah, I so totally support the concept behind this and the goal and our cultural failure and political failure to recognize the imminent threat. The the too lateness of this is tragic. And I, you know, I've heard people say it's like a Dr. Strange love. And I've, I've heard people on all sides of this movie who hate it, love it. I think for me, this goes back to something you said before, Charles, and I don't know if this is useful for those who are listening necessarily, but I think I like when a movie has an issue at heart and it treats it more metaphorically and and digs more into that than when it's so straightforward because I think I just am not motivated as an audience. I'm not excited by like, okay, you're going to tell me this thing. I may or may not already agree with you, but I know what you're going to talk to me about. I kind of like to go into a story and then maybe there's a metaphor. Again, I hate to keep harping on it, but Nightmare Alley was absolutely about modern day class and class issues. And it takes place in the past. It was it's based on an old book, but it's very much about stuff today, about have and have nots and the American dream. And I think that like, and, and Stillwater, I know a lot of people didn't see it. I thought it was excellent. And it's also very much about American identity. And like, if you're going to tackle stuff like climate change, I don't know. I think audiences are sophisticated. I think when you make it obvious, this is my own personal taste, but I don't know if the creatives out there will agree or disagree or what they expect, but I think you run a little bit of a risk when you're like, we're going to make it very overt and obvious. We're going to make it about a president who refuses to acknowledge and like how the political machine is dumb and we're all doomed. And it's so obvious. It's like, I just like, it's kind of like being told you have to eat your vegetables to me. Oh, totally. Yeah. I don't think you're alone in this. I think that's, that's very sound. Well, thank you. I'm trying not to sound like my opinion is fact. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but it's the danger of the after school special, right? It's the reason why it's the reason why Get Out is oh, so great God, is yes. because Get Out functions as a horror yes. movie, but Amazing. it's also like really incisive about like race and exploitation. And like what Don't Look Up was trying to do, I think the goal was was to have the comet adventure be exciting enough that it would like that it would work the same way Get Out worked, but like it didn't. It didn't quite like it, it does feel more like an after school special with vegetables, and it doesn't feel like donuts the way get out is, donuts <laughs> packed with nutrients. Get out which is what I'm so going to say. Get exactly. out exactly. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up. It's so much what I'm thinking of in that it's like, and yet here's the thing. You know, you can't please all of the people all of the time because I knew so many people who saw Get Out and were like, I don't get it. Like that doesn't seem realistic to me. Like there were so many things that people were like, and I'd kind of stare at them and I'd be like, really? Like I mean. It, <laughs> no, I mean it was just like it was it was too much of a departure from reality for me. It was like, dude, this or dudette or whatever, this movie is about 
racism. <laughs> it, like it's not about the actual like, and it's probably the most like personal and yet universal and accurate and and powerful depiction using metaphor and using genre, all the tools, all the the colors on the palette, like mind-blowingly good like one of the most important well done you know movies and and i think that that's the thing is like you get us into the theater because you're like hey folks i'm going to tell you a story and then we come in we sit down we get into it and then we're like oh shit you also taught Mm. me something (laughs) like and i wasn't i didn't Mm. show up for that but now i'm now i've experienced something that i couldn't have experienced otherwise especially if you're white you know like that put you in a position where you saw it from a different angle that you couldn't see if it was just straight up mm-hmm. after school special. So look, I'm not like, we can't all do that. Like that was a really masterful, but, but I don't know. I think you make a great point that that's kind of like on the other end of like, I want to tell you something important, but I want to get you and I want to entertain you. So you actually, so I can s- secretly slip in that, that broccoli, I'm blending it into the tomato sauce on the pizza. <laughs> the donuts. Oh yeah, no. no. Liquor, it's licorice pizza. <laughs> it's totally licorice pizza. Which I actually thought like fennel is licorice flavored, and I could actually totally see <laughs> putting fennel on a pizza and having it work. And oh, I've yeah. been cooking a lot with my daughter, and I think we're going to try fennel pizza in honor of my love of that movie and its wonderful <laughs> title. So that is our holiday movie roundup, and moving on to tech news. So tech news this week is kind of a super fun one. I, I like drones. Drones are fun. Everything in the last two years that I've shot, there's been a drone shot in it at some point. Like if I go out to do a doc interview, I make sure and get like establishing shots of the building or like connecting material or something like it's just a really good all around tool to always have. I usually bring them on the location scout get an overhead for like plotting and lighting grids and stuff. And I mostly fly DJI, but there's a brand Skydio that people have been mentioning to me, but they haven't really been on my radar or a lot of filmmakers radar. And I think that they just dropped a new feature that should have them on Filmmaker's Radar. So Skydio's whole thing is they're a bunch of MIT nerds who build an autonomy engine. So that like the drone is surrounded by all these wide-angle cameras, and they build a 360 view of the world inside the drone. And the drone can like fly itself in a lot of a lot of situations you would not think it would be able to survive. So like you know, there's some basic stuff in DJI drones, like you can hit a button and it'll fly to home. But like, if it starts to fly to home and it runs into a tree, it'll just like stop. Or if you don't have it, if you don't have the feature turned on, it'll like crash into the tree. What's really fascinating with the Skydio is like, you can say fly to home and it'll like weave through trees in a way that's like shocking. And if it gets stuck, it'll be like, oh, I'm stuck. Can you fly me out? And then it'll go back. And actually one time I had to fly home and it was like, oh, I got stuck. Fly me out. And I flew it out and it flew back. And then I put it back in the same place. And I said, fly home. And it took a different route home. It like remembered it didn't make it through those trees. And it's like, oh, I'm going to go around them this time. And it's like, that's like, it's like, it's awesome. It's super cool. So they just, and they have a whole bunch of other features that like action sports people like, like you can track yourself with it. So you're like on a bike ride or a run, it'll follow you and can circle you and it does this wall avoiding stuff like, and I tried to get it to crash. I'd like go running with it or whatever. And I'd like try and run it so that it would like r- crash into something. And it would be like, nope, not going to let you. It was like, it was fun. They just rolled out a new feature called keyframe, which lets you keyframe your shot ahead of time. So like you go out and you like fly the drone to like the beginning of the shot, the middle of the shot, the end of the shot, and you add keyframes. And then it can just 
fly it. That's repeatedly. awesome. So you program it basically to get the shot. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And when it's windless, it's good enough. You could composite multiple takes together. So you're like, you know, you, you have the actor do three different things like talking to each other. And then you can do this drone shot where the actor's like talking to each other or whatever. I, it's I, I just have to jump in because wow. I have a re- a rare, like truly relevant recent story. My brother got a drone as a gift over the holidays and we went out and <laughs> the first day he had it and we went out to some snowy area and he took it out and it was like he, he was moving it around and literally on its first flight it disappeared into a forest and he spent hours in the snow searching the forest for it and eventually discovered <laughs> that it was stuck high in a tree and there was like no way to get it out and that was the end of the drone. Like there was no way we were in a, it became like blizzard like and we left. <laughs> it's just like hearing you talk about this, this version oh of a drone. God. I'm like, Oh, I, I hope he hasn't bought a new one because this would be, this would be problem solved. So is there no other competitor that can do this? I mean, so this is the big competition area. DJI has some basic collision avoidance. Like you can turn on these cameras that like prevent side collisions and front co- collisions. But in terms of like, and then there's been a bunch of Kickstarters that you can find out there that are like, that have all these features built in. But as far as I can tell, this is the only thing that like, you can just go buy that actually exists that's out in the world where it does it. And nobody else does keyframe. And keyframe is that thing where it's like, what I want, they don't do it yet, but I like, I told them in my press briefing and I put it in my reviews and I hope they do it. I want to be able to save keyframes so that I could do like, like I could do the shot at dawn and a shot at dusk and then wipe in between them or like shoot the same beach every June for like 10 years and then watch climate change erode the beach away in a drone shot. Like that's what I want. I don't know how hard it is to save keyframes permanently. I really hope they enable that. But yeah, nobody else does this right now that I know of. Wow. Yeah. It was super duper fun to play with. It was like some of the more fun I've had reviewing something lately. So yeah, and it's only like $1,200. The drawback is it's only 4K, although it does 4K 60, and it doesn't have log recording, which is like kind of a bummer, but like, you know, everything has some drawbacks and the ability to just like program a shot and then have it do it and have it look nice is kind of great. Cool. All right, let's tech news. And then last up this week, in three weeks, Sundance is happening. I know a bunch of people who think they are going. I'm I'm doing the thing now where I'm like, oh, you're going and you're going and you should meet and sending emails to try and like have people set up coffees and stuff. I think it's probably going to happen. <laughs> Do you guys think Sundance is actually oh, going to yes. happen in three weeks? No, we not are not. No film school is going to cover remote, but from my sense from them and just, yes, I think it's happening. I think that we have reached the fuck it, I'll get COVID stage of COVID and people are just like they're going to do stuff. It seems like tons of people I know are getting it recently and suffering through the cold and, and moving on. And this Omicron wave, I don't think anything's going to get canceled. That's my instinct. And then, uh, Kath, you had a question about the whole sort of Sundance and festival strategy space. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to Sundance in person, although now kind of wish that I was since it really does seem like it's going ahead. But since it is now the start of 2022 uh, and festivals, my Ask No Film School question is about going to festivals when you have a project in mind that you are looking to fund 
and best practices for doing this. I heard, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine recently who went with a director friend to Cannes to just pitch their project. They didn't have a film in Cannes. They were just going to Cannes to go and pitch their project. And just through hanging out and meeting people and, you know, pitching their project, managed to raise half a million dollars to fund it. And I'm like, how the hell do you do that? So that's my question for this week is, you know, with Sundance around the corner, when you have a project in mind, you're going to a festival to meet people and pitch it and get it funded. How do you, how do you do that? What are the best practices? So there's like a dozen different approaches here to talk through. First off, everybody's different in terms of their socialization skill. So some people go to festivals and hang out with people they already know and don't meet anyone new and they still go on to have wonderful careers. It sounds like your particular friend managed to have some like extroversion, ability to, be, to meet new people. Khan is also famously a fundraising focused festival. Like when Alec Baldwin wanted to make his weird movie about how hard it is to finance movies with James Toback, who has now rightly been canceled. And he like, he made up like a horrible movie and then he made a documentary about how hard it was to get it financed. But it's like the movie sounded bad. So of course it's hard to finance. Went to Khan. So Khan is the place. Like you obviously, Sundance, there's this activity, Palm Sprint. Like I know people who met mm. investors and all sorts of them, but Khan is the one. And then the other thing is that most festivals have specific programming around this. So Berlin, Khan, Toronto, Sundance, they're going to have producers networking events. They're going to have those kind of things like a friend of mine or like a coworker of mine. I'm going to call her a friend. A friend of mine was one of the finance, the founders of the producer's lunch. So a couple of years ago, our producer brunch. So a couple of years ago, George and I went to that because she was able to get oh, me yeah. on the invite list. And we went like, it's, it's like a, it's a famous thing at Sundance, the producer's brunch. And mm. you know, you go to stuff like that and you talk to whoever you, you talk to whoever's standing in front of you. You start up a conversation with the person in front of you in line or behind you in line. You don't have to scan the room and find the most powerful person. Like, just go get a snack and then talk to whoever is right next to the snack table and then have more snacks. And, you know, that's the thing. I always try and, like, pencil in some plans. Like, I always, you know, I'm like, okay, well, let's, like, let's try and set up a couple coffees. I, I, I let it be known on all the socials that I'm going. And if there's any introductions people want to make, I'm making those intros right now where I'm finding out, oh, you're going and you're going and you two should meet and yada, yada. And I think a lot of people sort of peripheral to the space do those things for each other, even if we're not actually going. And mm. what are the other sort of strategies? Um, there's parties are always like, there's always a lot of parties every night. All of the big parties are sort of far away. I, I mean, at least at Sundance, the biggest parties are like the ones further away from Main Street. Like when you get invited to a party, you have to take an Uber up the mountain to, it's probably going to be like, more power players. And then when you get invited to a party, although I take that back, I totally went to a party a couple years ago at Sundance that was like on Main Street, and like Judd Apatow was hanging out talking to people. So like power players also show up in those crazy Main Street parties that make <laughs> you feel like you're in college. Um, I don't yeah. have much real functional advice about this stuff because I haven't really ever done it before. So I don't know what it's like to go to a festival with a project that you're trying to finance. And I don't have a good strategy because I think that one of the core, if I could go back in time and talk to a younger version of myself about some of the marketing or the trend, it's very hard to convince somebody that you have something that they want. They have to have some innate interest. And I don't really, you know, negotiation and, and mm. that sort of thing 
I think it's tricky. I think that my advice would be to try and get some ducks in a row in terms of who do I know who's going and try to, to know in advance who you know and what they're up to that there, because networking is really all about like the person you know and the person they know. So it's not, some people are very good. Charles, you may be one of these. I think our founder CEO, Ryan Koo, is very good at this, of just like cold, like, hey, I'm so-and-so, what's up? Let's chat. I'm not that good at that. But what I can be, but what's helpful is like, if you say, who do I know who's attending? Connect with them in advance and then figure out what they're up to and then tag along and then meet the people they know and then go from there. That can be helpful. You get into a conversation, you get an introduction, you know. I think that if you're, I will just reiterate, if you have a project you're trying to get financed, I'm not the person to advise on the going in cold because I don't think it's, it's not Mm. something I'm effective at. And I don't know that I have an idea about the way to be effective at it. I think what I try instead, or what I tried instead was to have something that was of interest already. I was more of a, let's make a sizzle and put it on YouTube or let's make a, you know, I was more of a show me kind of person. And then once you see something and you're interested, then we can have a conversation. But I don't know that I have that skill. That's like the sell the thing that the person has never even heard of before, because that's tricky. Yeah. Yeah, I'm amazed your friend managed to raise half a million dollars at con. Like that's a, I am too. Good for them. Ask him to come on the podcast so we can absolutely. If I I mean, that's the kind of valuable, like there are a lot of things that I will espouse on here where I feel like I know, like I have, I have answers, but I really think that the, how do you start raising money from nothing with just an idea? That is not something I can advise someone on. I think that is a very challenging thing to do to say the least. And I think like all my answers to that would be strategies about like, maybe you need a sizzle. Maybe you need a producing partner. Maybe you need a star. Maybe you like, I'm not the person mm-hmm. who's like, you can do it out mm-hmm. of thin air. Like, <laughs> like, I just don't, that's not me. I don't know. I don't know that way, mm. but people do. Yeah. When I went to Sundance a couple of years ago, I found that like, I mean, just trying to figure out where parties were happening felt very difficult. I had, I knew a couple people there, but Here's one thing I can say that's useful that I experience based. If you see, if you're anywhere at Sundance and you see somebody you know, do not hesitate to go up to them and start talking because that some of us like me, like more naturally not as interested in socializing people, we will kind of be like, oh yeah, well, I don't want to bother so-and-so and and like whatever like they're in a conversation and i'm just gonna sip my sparkling water (laughs) over here but like do not hesitate (laughs) i saw a guy one time at sundance at a bar and i had worked with him years prior on something like a pilot and he was there with a short and a feature and as an actor and he had other stuff going on and i just ran up and we chatted for a while we ended up doing a podcast we ended up just connecting like, and I wasn't even like I had something, you know, but like, don't hesitate. Like people are always happy to talk to somebody they know they're likely in the same boat as you. You've probably heard that advice elsewhere, but don't hesitate. I think folks, if you're mm-hmm. at one of these things and you happen to see somebody you recognize or know, just jump right in and then ask cool. them for half a million dollars. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I also think this is less because I, I agree with George. I've not gone out and raised half a million dollars at the festival. So I, I would love to get the advice of the person who did it. For me, these all got easier the more I did them. 
Like I go to Cinegear every year. I go to NAB every year. I mean, obviously not in a pandemic and so that a kid, but I used to. And, you know, my first year, I remember clearly going to Cinegear and wandering around. And like, I'm a nerd. I love that shit. And I felt uncomfortable. Yes. And I didn't run into anybody I knew. You know, I was there like two hours and I went home and I was like, and it was really, it, it was one of the years it was at Universal and it was really expensive to park there or whatever. And I was like, well, that was a waste. And then five years later, because I kept going every year and I kept working, you know, all of a sudden, if I go to Cinegear now, like the whole day, it's just eight hours of me running into people I know and talking yes. to them for 20 or 30 minutes each. Mm. But like, you know, I mean, the hardest thing about the fucking film industry is is trying to get going quickly. I mean, that's what's so amazing about a wonderkind. Like when you see someone like P.T. Anderson making something at 26. Because mm. like for me, everything is so slow. And like I remember hearing the advice early on of like, oh, well, you're thinking about a festival. Like think about everything that you've seen at that festival that you loved. And it's like, well, all right, I'm, I haven't been to that festival ever. And it's like, for many people in the industry, like when, when you're trying to get a film into Sundance, you've been going to Sundance for eight years or whatever. And so you know the world and you know what kind of films they pick and whatever. And so like when you're 24 and you're trying to figure out what's what, like I hadn't ever been. And so it's like, that's such patience, that I is, guess. Patience that is, is such good advice, especially citing PTA. Because when I was, I like worshipped PTA's wonderkindness. And, you know, I was I'm younger than him, but like he was close enough that when he broke through, I was like, that's what I want to be like, like kind of like big brother style. Not that I know him, but like that I saw it like it's not that far away. He's not Steven Spielberg. He was a guy who was a little closer to my generation. And then similarly, like always thought it was just badass that like Orson Welles was just like, hey, I'm making a feature. I've never done it before. Here's how about I make the best one ever why not you know like i just thought like that's what i want to do you know and actually spielberg was kind of a wonderkin too do not be i highly highly stress what charles said for everybody out there going the patient route do, do not be impatient because you're like but other people just jumped into the deep end and swam like that's a really good way to drown and die Yes, exactly. PTA it's a trap. A trap. Like, let you it guys. let it be. PTA it is, is cool. Trap. It can happen. It's a fun story. But you you're way more likely to die <laughs> if you jump into the deep end having never swam before. <laughs> so don't do that. Take a step into the sh- on the steps. Get just your toes wet. Get out of the pool. Be pissed off that you spent so much money to just step into one step, and then step into another step another day, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And then you'll one day find that you're actually like really good at this stuff because I, I was so arrogant. I I've said it before on the podcast, but I was like, I don't want to go to festivals. I want to go to festivals because they're showing my movie. That is so dumb. Like you, you really want to go to festivals a lot and see the stuff there and meet the people and make the connections mm. and have relationships and identify what actually plays there and what the programmers talk about before they show the movies because that'll give you insight. If you're you're smart, you'll pick up quickly on like, oh, that's why my like I like way later down the line, I was like, so that's why my movies were never gonna get into Sundance. All I had to do was go once and I would have figured out so many mm-hmm. things, but I was so I fell into that trap, you know. Don't fall into that trap. Well, it's not it's Great advice. I'm just piggybacking on, on right, what guys. you guys so were what saying, are we, but, what are we- but I love it. I just think it's great. <laughs> All right, well, let's wrap up with this. What are we looking forward to in 2022? I'm directing a short I'm really excited about. Um, and I went back to a casting director I haven't worked with in a while, and I'm working with her again to cast it, and I'm excited That's about awesome. that. That's awesome. I am going to raise half a million dollars to make my nice. future. 
<laughs> yes, you are. And nice. then you're going to tell us about nice. how you did it. I'm excited. I'm not just doing this because we're in the No Film School podcast and it's, you know, branding. I am excited for this year at No Film School. We have some very exciting things, exciting, exciting, that we're working on that we're hoping to bring spring, summer. Charles is involved. And I think that it's taking all of what we're doing to the next level. And we will keep you updated on the podcast, of course, as well as on all of our other networks. But beyond just our regular content, which obviously we're always working on getting better and we love to hear back from you about, you know, I'm excited about what's happening with the podcast and with our new offerings. And I also want to say, I really appreciate a lot of people have emailed about them enjoying this podcast and having thoughts about things we've done way, 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 way back months ago. People follow up on and email us and remember to email us at editor at nofilmschool.com with whatever you think about what we're doing and your questions, but we appreciate hearing from you. It makes it more fun to do it. So thank you. Well, it's a great start to 2022. You can find me on the internet at charleshane.com and my articles at nofilmschool.com and, you know, more stuff coming this year. You can find me at katherinetolentino.com. And you can find me at George Edelman on Twitter. You can also find everything we talked about today more at nofilmschool.com. You can like us on Facebook and Instagram, follow us on Twitter, check us out on YouTube. Please like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Check out also the interviews. They are in the same feed. We talk to filmmakers of all kinds on all manner of film and project. And we always look forward to hearing from you with your questions. Like I said, editor at nofilmschool.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>